0: In today's world of mass communication, gruesome content has become just about as normalised in our society as any other piece of information. We have websites dedicated to autopsy photos, and live-streamed murders are on our newsfeeds. It seems as if nothing is off-limits. Still, some crimes are so astonishing that they simply defy comprehension, even to the most desensitised of podcast listeners. Most Brutal Murders, this week on Mysteriously Listed. And just a word of warning before listening to today's episode. This episode does include graphic details of child abuse. Those sensitive to this topic may be best to skip this episode. Listener discretion is heavily advised. Number 8. Brianna Lopez On Valentine's Day 2002, 19-year-old Stephanie Lopez gave birth to a daughter named Brianna Lopez. After giving birth, Stephanie took the baby to go live in a mobile home in Las Cruz, New Mexico. Also living in the home was Stephanie's boyfriend and the father of Brianna, Andy Walters. Andy's mother, Patricia Walters, owned the mobile home and lived there as well. But they weren't the only people living in this small mobile home. Patricia's boyfriend, Andy's brother and his girlfriend, Stephanie's 19-year-old twin brother, and her 18-month-old son, they also lived in the mobile home. In case you've lost count, there were seven adults and two children living in this small mobile home. On July 19th, 2002, Stephanie called 911. She said that five-and-a-half-month-old Brianna wasn't breathing. An ambulance arrived and took the baby to the hospital. Sadly, she was pronounced dead a little more than an hour later. Because of the condition of Brianna's body, the police and the district attorney were called to the hospital. The medical examiner would later report that every single body part of Brianna's was bruised. There were new bruises and bruises in different stages of healing. She had fractures to her skull, arms, legs, and ribs. She also had 15 bite marks on her tiny body. There was also signs that she had been sexually assaulted. The police interviewed all the adults who were living in the mobile home. Brianna's parents, Andy and Stephanie, as well as her brother Stephen, said that it started the night before they called 911. Andy said he was on his way back home from work when he picked up a case of beer. Stephanie said she had three beers and then went to bed. Andy and Stephen stayed up drinking and at some point in the evening they started to play with Brianna. Andy said that Stephen picked up the baby and threw her in the air. The baby hit the ceiling and fell to the floor. He picked her up off the floor and threw her in the air again. Once again she hit the ceiling and fell to the floor. He would pick her up and throw her towards the ceiling one more time, but this time he caught her on the way back down. Andy said that Brianna was conscious and crying when he went to bed, but he did not remember where he put the baby when he went to sleep. Stephanie said she got up after midnight and she found Brianna lying on the floor. She said that she changed her diaper and put her in the crib. Stephanie said she went back to bed. They said when they woke up the following morning. That is when they found Brianna unresponsive. However, the police knew this wasn't the entire story because while this explains some of Brianna's injuries, it does not explain all of them. Stephanie, Andy, and Stephen were all interviewed a second time. This time, Andy would say that Stephanie would pinch, bite, and throw Brianna whenever she became annoyed with her. Andy admitted to sexually assaulting her. Stephen also made a horrifying confession. He said that when he was really drunk and didn't really remember starting to do it, but he found himself raping Brianna. He said that he stopped because he realized it was wrong. The police and district attorney still didn't think they had the whole story. The medical examiner would later report that the baby had been injured and abused every day over her short life. Nevertheless, the trio and two other family members were charged with a series of crimes. Brianna's father, Andy Walters, was sentenced to 63 years in prison. Andy's mother and brother, who also lived in the mobile home, they were convicted to failing to report the abuse. They were both sentenced to 60 days in jail. Brianna's mother, Stephanie, was sentenced to 27 years in prison. Her twin brother and Brianna's uncle, Stephen, were sentenced to 57 years of prison. Stephanie's sentence was the longest she could receive for child abuse resulting in death. A condition of the sentence was that she gets time off for good behaviour. As a result, she was released in September 2016 after serving only 13 years of her sentence. There was public outrage that Stephanie would either be involved or overlook the abuse of her baby and then get such a lenient sentence. After Brianna's death, a new law was created in her name, which gives mandatory sentences for child abuse, resulting in the death of a child under the age of 13. Number 7. Sterling Cohen Zachary Cohen and Cheyenne Harris started dating just before Harris's 18th birthday, The couple were on again, off again for several years before Harris gave birth to a daughter. Eventually, Cohen and Harris moved into an apartment together in Alta Vista, Ohio. On May 1st, 2017, Harris gave birth to her second child, a son named Sterling. Four months later, on August 30th at 12.57pm, Cohen called 911. He told the 911 operator that their four-month-old baby was dead. The police and paramedics went to their apartment, and they were sickened by what they had found. The couple claimed they fed the baby Sterling at around 9am that morning, and then sometime between 11 and 11.30am, they checked on the baby and he was dead. However, it wouldn't be until nearly two hours later that Cohen would call 911. When the police and paramedics arrived at the apartment, they led them to a room where the baby slept alone. The couple and their eldest child slept in a different room. When the first responder found the baby, he was in an electronic swing chair. Not only was Sterling dead but he smelt horrible and was covered in maggots. An autopsy was performed on baby Sterling. When he died, he only weighed seven pounds and was only 14 inches long. That put him well below the fifth percentile on weight and length for his age. The medical examiner called in a forensic entomologist to examine the maggots. They concluded that Sterling had been in the swing chair for at least a week. During that time, he had not been bathed, and his diapers had not been changed once. The police interviewed Cohen and Harris again, and they admitted the last time they checked on the baby was the day before they called 911. The couple also admitted that they had a history of smoking methamphetamines, but Harris claimed she had not done this for a couple of months. Cohen claimed it had been a couple of weeks since he last smoked the drug. The couple were not arrested immediately, but their daughter was removed from their custody. In the two months following Sterling's death, Cohen posted regularly on Facebook. In a post that he wrote and Harris replied to, they both expressed genuine surprise that their daughter was taken from them. Another time, Cohen posted a meme of a group of pit bulls. The caption of the picture read, To some, I'll always be the bad guy. One of his friends replied to the post and told him that he was the bad guy because he neglected his baby son and allowed him to die. It wouldn't be until February 2019 that the final sentences were handed down. After only five hours of deliberation, both Cohen and Harris were found guilty of first-degree murder and child neglect. They were denied a retrial request and will both serve out life sentences without the possibility of parole. Number 6. Kathleen Steele. Kathleen Steele was born in Chicago, Illinois, and she moved to St. Petersburg, Florida. In 1972, she married a man named Philip, and they decided to focus on their careers instead of starting a family. And then in late 2000s, when they were both in their 50s, they decided that they wanted to have children in 2009, still was pregnant at 55 years old. She was a subject on the appropriately named documentary, I'm Pregnant and I'm 55, which aired on the USA Network in 2009. That pregnancy resulted in the birth of a son. In 2011, two years after their son was born, Philip, who was now 66, died from cancer, but still wanted to have more children. A year after her husband's death, Still was impregnated with Philip's frozen sperm. This pregnancy also resulted in a son. Two years later, in late 2015, Steele was again pregnant with her dead husband's child. On July 26, 2016, Still gave birth to a daughter named Kathleen Bridget. Thirteen days after the birth, Still had to run some errands, so she loaded the three kids into her minivan. First, she stopped off at a cell phone repair shop. She left her two sons, who were six and three in the van, with 13-day-old Kathleen. It was August, and they were in Florida but still did not leave the air conditioning in the car on and all the windows were rolled up for 28 minutes still stayed in the store when she returned to the van her older son told her there was something wrong with the baby he told her that it was serious but still ignored him and continued to run her errands before returning home it was only then that she noticed that Kathleen's face was blue Despite it being obvious that something was wrong with the baby, she did not call 911. Instead, she asked a neighbour, who was a registered nurse, for some help. The neighbour was horrified to find the baby unresponsive, and she would be the one to call 911. The baby was rushed to the hospital, but it was too late. The medical examiner said the baby had suffered from multiple head wounds. She said that her skull had fractures, like they were cracks on a sidewalk. The police interviewed Steele's oldest son, who was six years old. He said that while his mother was in the cell phone repair shop, the baby started crying. He said he got her out of the car seat and slammed her head into the roof of the minivan. That he picked her up and dropped her a few more times before putting her back in the car seat. The boy wasn't charged with any crimes because of his young age. In May 2017, Steele pleaded guilty to leaving a child unattended in a vehicle causing injury. She was sentenced to six years probation. However, she lost custody of her two sons, but she was granted supervised visits while on probation. Number 5. Kelly Bates. Kelly Bates was born on May 18, 1978, in Greater Manchester, England. She was a bit of a tomboy, and when she grew up, she wanted to be a teacher. When Kelly was 14, she started seeing James Patterson Smith, a 32-year-old unemployed divorcee. When Kelly was babysitting one of Smith's friends' children, He went with her to walk her home to keep her safe. After their initial meeting, Smith started to groom Kelly. A few years later, when she was 16, she introduced Smith to her parents. They were quite taken aback by his age, and they tried to discourage Kelly from dating him, but Kelly refused to listen. They would have fights about the relationship, and she would run away. Her parents would always find her at Smith's house. Kelly and Smith broke up for a short time, but it wasn't long before they were back together. On November 30, 1995, 17-year-old Kelly moved in with 34-year-old Smith. This would be the last day that her parents would see their daughter alive. She would call them on the phone sometimes, but they never saw her again. Later in April 1996, Kelly's parents were worried about her, and they decided to go over to Smith's home and demand to see their daughter as they had not seen her in five months. Their son stopped by just as they were about to leave, and he reassured them that a mutual friend had seen Kelly recently and spoke to her, and she said she was fine. Her parents decided to respect their daughter's wishes and did not go over to Smith's house. Three weeks later, Smith walked into the police station and said he had killed Kelly. He said he had been holding her head underwater in the bathtub, that he thought that she had faked losing consciousness, which she had done several times before. But this time, she didn't stick her head back up out of the water. The police went to the house and found Kelly drowned in the bathtub. The police officers who first arrived at the scene were shocked by the sight of the body. It was clear she had been tortured. One investigator would later state in interviews that in his 15 years on the force, it was the most horrific case he had ever seen. In total, there would be 150 wounds on her body. Some other injuries included burns on her thighs from an iron. Her arms and legs had been scalded. Her arms had also been fractured, her knees were broken, and both her hands were crushed. She had been stabbed in the face and through the cheek with a knife and a pair of scissors. Kelly had been tied to a radiator by her hair and she'd been partially scalped but the most horrific thing that happened to her was that her eyes were gouged out. The medical examiner would determine that her eyes had been gouged out between five days and three weeks before she had died. Smith had most likely gouged out her eyes with his thumbs. Kelly had also been starved and she was dehydrated. She had lost 44 pounds and probably did not have water in the seven days before she died. On the day she died, she was struck several times on the head with a shower head, and then she was drowned. The medical examiner said that the death was probably a relief. When Smith was asked why he beat, tortured, and disfigured Kelly over the course of several weeks, he said it was because she provoked him and kept daring him to do things. He also said that she mocked him because of his dead mother. At Smith's trial, it was revealed he had abused his former wife and many former girlfriends, that he had held several of their heads underwater while they were in the bathtub He also tried to drown a former lover by holding her head underwater in the kitchen sink. It was also revealed that besides Kelly, he dated other underage girls when he was in his 30s. It only took one hour for the jury to find him guilty. Members of the jury were offered psychological treatment to help deal with the shock of seeing photographs of Kelly's body. Smith would be sentenced to life in prison, which he must serve a minimum of 20 years. Kelly's parents look back on the last couple of years of her life with regret. Her father wishes that he had killed Smith the first time he walked into their home. They also wished they went to his home three weeks before Kelly had died. At that point, it may have been too late to save her eyes, but they would have at least saved her life. Number 4. Kevin Davis Just before 10am on March 28th, 2014, a couple in Corpus Christi, Texas, let their dog out in their yard for some fresh air and some exercise. Not long after this, their doorbell rang. When they opened the door, a young man was standing there. He asked them to call the police because he had killed someone. The woman went and grabbed a phone and dialed 911 as she walked back to their front door. The dispatcher wanted to know this young man's name and who he had killed. He replied that his name was Kevin Davis and he had killed his mother, that he had beaten her to death with a hammer that he had lots of reasons to kill her. The police arrived and arrested 18-year-old Kevin Davis. The police went to his apartment, and in one of the bedrooms they found the naked body of Davis's 50-year-old mother, Kimberly Hill. Davis was brought in for questioning, and he did not try to hide what he had done. His confession would match closely with the autopsy report, so it was obvious to the police that he was telling the truth. What he did was absolutely horrifying. Davis said that between 7 and 9pm on March 27th, he tried to strangle his mother with an electrical cord. This didn't work, so he picked up a hammer and started striking his mother in the head he would ultimately hit her 20 times before her skull cracked open. To make sure his mother was dead, he put his hand in the crack of the skull and pushed the brain around with his fingers. He then put a knife into the same crack to, quote, mix up her brain, unquote. He supposedly also tasted the brain matter. He would tell police it was the same texture as putty. Sadly, this wouldn't be the end to Davis' assault against his now-deceased mother. He would then undress his mother before having sex with her dead body. He explained to the investigators this is how he lost his virginity. After killing his mother, he would wait for his sister to come home so he could kill her too. But she didn't return home. Davis got tired of waiting, got on his bike, and planned on riding out of town. During this ride, he changed his mind and went up to the first house he saw. The investigators could not be more shocked by what they were hearing. They could not understand how someone could do such a thing. They asked Davis if she abused him or was there anything that would explain why she deserved such a violent and horrific death. He simply said she was a good mother and she did nothing to him. He told them that he was, quote, a disgusting, terrible person, unquote. Davis told the police that for some time he had fantasized about killing women and having sex with their dead bodies. He said that he was not insane and knew what he was doing. A psychiatrist examined him and came to the conclusion that Davis knew what he was doing at the time of the murder. In October 2014, Kevin Davis was sentenced to life in prison. Number 3. Stephen Smith 31-year-old Stephen Smith from Mansfield, Ohio, started dating Keisha Fry in April of 1988. A few months later, Smith moved in with Keisha and her two daughters, two-year-old Ashley and four-week-old Autumn. The relationship was rocky from the start. After a few months, Keisha asked Smith to move out because he was drinking too much. However, he would only leave the home for a short time before moving back in. In September 1988, Smith lost his job, so he would babysit Ashley and now six-month-old Autumn while Keisha went to work. On September twenty-eighth, Smith was babysitting the girls while having several beers. After Keisha got home from work, he gave her some alone time and took the children out for dinner at a fast food restaurant. On the way home, he would stop in to visit a friend. Here, he would have several more beers. During the drive home, he would purchase even more alcohol. Upon arriving back at the home, the girls were put to bed and Smith continued to drink heavily. Around 11pm, Keisha went to bed while Stephen stayed up to watch television to continue drinking. According to court documents, at 3:22am, Smith burst into the bedroom and woke Keisha. He was naked and holding something in his arms. Keisha quickly realized he was holding her baby daughter autumn. Keisha realised her daughter was limp and knew something was horribly wrong. She screamed at Smith, accusing him of killing the baby. Smith, who was incredibly intoxicated, insisted he did nothing wrong. Keisha grabbed the naked body of her six-month-old daughter Autumn and her eldest daughter Ashley and ran to a neighbouring home. The police and the EMT arrived shortly after. The EMT would attempt resuscitation for almost an hour, but sadly Autumn was declared dead at the scene. The baby's body was covered in welts and bruises. There were cuts to her face and there were obvious indicators that she had been sexually assaulted. The cause of death was determined to be suffocation and trauma to the head that occurred during the sexual assault. Smith would insist he was not responsible for the death. He said that he was asleep when Keisha woke him up, accusing him of killing the baby. Later, he would change his story to that he was asleep when he was awoken by Autumn's cries. When he went to check on her, he found her the way she was and carried her to her mother. However, forensic testing would determine that he was the person responsible. At his trial, the prosecutor would call Smith a, quote, baby raper, unquote. They argued that the sexual assault could have lasted for half an hour. I'm not sure how this matters, but his lawyers argued that the baby could have been suffocated only three to four minutes into the assault. His lawyer argued that the baby could have been suffocated three or four minutes into the assault, Not that I think that matters at all, but at least the baby didn't suffer long. Stephen Smith was found guilty of aggravated murder and was sentenced to death. He was scheduled to die on May 1st, 1998. In April 2013, his lawyers tried to appeal the sentence and asked the governor for clemency. They argued that Smith was so drunk that night, he didn't realise he was killing the baby when he was raping her. They argued that this made Autumn's death a grotesque accident and not murder. Unsurprisingly, no one had sympathy for Smith. The night before his execution, Smith spent time with his 21-year-old daughter and his niece they listened to a baseball game on the radio and ate pizza with pepperoni, ham and sausage. They also had fried fish, french fries, chocolate ice cream and drank Mountain Dew. Smith was executed via lethal injection and was pronounced dead at 10.29am on May 1st, 1998. After his death, Autumn's mother Keisha pumped her fists in the air in victory. Number two, Cody Sanchez. On July 26, 2009 at 5am, the police were called to the home on the north side of San Antonio, Texas. When they arrived, they found the bedroom covered in blood and 33-year-old Cody Sanchez screaming that the devil made her do it. The first officers to arrive on the scene couldn't speak after being in the room. Some of them had to receive long-term counselling afterward. Cody Sanchez stated that she heard voices in her head when she was just five years old. Her mother and a few of her aunts experienced similar hallucinations. When Sanchez was an adult, she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. In 2003, when she was 26, she met Scott Buckles, who had also been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Their relationship was on again, off again for several years. Sanchez sought treatment for her schizophrenia and was hospitalized several times, but she often found it difficult to get the help that she needed. In 2008, she was no longer receiving treatment for her schizophrenia and she was back together with Buckles. In October of that year, she found out that she was pregnant. On June 30, 2009, she gave birth to a boy, Scotty Buckles. After Sanchez gave birth, she was prescribed a drug for postpartum depression, but the drug made her tired, so on July seventeenth, she stopped taking them. On July 20th, she got into a fight with Buckles and took her newborn baby to stay with her mother. The fight stressed her out, and this made her mental condition worse. She went to the hospital emergency room and asked for help. They interviewed her for 15 minutes and asked her if she was suicidal or homicidal. She said that she wasn't. So they sent her home instead of admitting her for inpatient care. It would be six days later that the call would come in to 911 and Sanchez was arrested. She would be interviewed by three different psychiatrists in the county jail and she explained what happened. She said that the voices inside her head told her that her mother had killed Mallory Monroe and John F. Kennedy and this made the Ku Klux Klan angry. She also said that the voices called her a harlot because she had committed adultery. The voices also told her that baby Scotty was possessed, and there was a demon in her stomach, and if she ate Scotty, the demon would come out. Scotty would then evolve, and he would no longer be possessed." According to Sanchez, at 4.30am while the rest of the house was asleep, she grabbed a steak knife from the kitchen. She also picked up two swords. The three-week-old baby was stabbed, decapitated, and had his face torn off. The baby's head was also cracked open and his brain was missing. Because the voices told her to, Sanchez ate a few of Scotty's toes, fingers, and some of his brain. She vomited while eating her newborn baby. The voices in her head told her she had to eat what she threw up. Sanchez's aunt, who lived in the house, discovered the gruesome scene, and she was the one who called 911. On June thirtieth, two 2010, on what would have been Scotty's first birthday, Cody Sanchez was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Number one, the Dardine Family. Ina, Illinois is a small village with a population of 500 in 1987. The Dardeen family lived in a small trailer outside the village centre. The family consisted of 29-year-old Russell, his seven-month pregnant wife Elaine, who was 30 years old at the time, and their three-year-old son, Peter. In the fall of 1987, Russell and Elaine were trying to sell their trailer so they could upgrade their home for their growing family. On November 17th, after no one had seen the family for a few days, Russell's mother contacted the police and asked them to do a welfare check on the family. What the officers would see in the small trailer would haunt them for the rest of their lives. On a waterbed in the main bedroom, lying side by side, were the dead bodies of Elaine and her toddler son Peter. Elaine had been bound and gagged, and then both mother and son had been beaten to death with a baseball bat. What makes this story even more horrific is that during the attack, Elaine went into labour and gave birth. After she did, the killer would beat the newborn baby girl to death as well. He would then toss her body on the waterbed with her mother. The immediate suspect in this terrifying crime was Russell, who wasn't found in the trailer. When the police found his car the next day, they were in for another shock. The front seat of his car was covered in blood. Later that day, Russell's body would be found in a field by hunters. He had been shot three times and his genitals had been mutilated. The residents of the small town were obviously terrified by the mass murder. This only intensified when the police did not make any arrests and they had no persons of interest. The police theorised that the killer got into the trailer by pretending to be interested in buying it, but beyond that they didn't know anything else. There was no motive for the killings, nothing was stolen, and there was no evidence of a sexual assault. It wouldn't be until early 2013, police would publicly identify the only suspect in the case. On December 31st, 1999, a man broke into the trailer home of Terry and Crystal Harris in San Antonio, Texas, Using a boning knife, the men attacked their daughter, 13-year-old Katie, and her friend, 10-year-old Crystal Searles, who was having a sleepover. Amazingly, Crystal survived the attack, despite having her throat slit. Sadly, Katie would die from her extensive injuries. Crystal was able to give a detailed description of her attacker, Two days later, drifter Tommy Sells was arrested. While in custody, Sells admitted to dozens of murders, including the murders of the Dardene family. Sells claimed to have met the family at a gas station, and they asked him to come back to their trailer for dinner. Once there, Sells claimed that Russell came on to him, which made him angry. He tied up a lane and then drove Russell away from the trailer and killed him. Sells then returned to the trailer and killed the rest of the family. The problem was that when Sells confessed, he was wrong with some of the details of the mass murder. He actually would never say anything that proved he was the killer, so it's unclear if Sells was lying for attention or if he was responsible for the murders of the Dardene family. Sells would admit to killing dozens of families involving women and children. He would later claim that he committed his first murder at age 15 in 1979, but this was never confirmed. The earliest crime that can be connected to Sells is the murders of Colleen Gill and her four-year-old daughter, on July 21st, 1983, when Sells would have been 19, they were beaten to death with a baseball bat in their home in St. Louis, Missouri. Three years later, Sells used a baseball bat to beat to death a mother and her four-year-old daughter in Missouri, and three years after that, the Dardines would be murdered in their trailer home. Russell Dardine's mother does not believe that Sells is responsible for the murders, and she thinks the real killer is still out there. Thomas Sells was executed on April 3rd, 2014, in Huntsville, Texas. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu.